Father God, Lord, thank you for today, Lord. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come and, Lord, you would speak through me, God. Lord, that you would take me in my inadequacy, God, and that you would just, by your spirit, just give life into my, into my words, God. Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, that there would be not, not just information, but transformation. God, Lord, that we'd be going out of here excited about our life with you, God, that we'd be going out of here challenged to walk and live tomorrow differently than today. Lord, in your great and awesome name. Amen. Cool. So, guys, it's great to be back sharing with you guys again. I haven't been up here for a few weeks because of various things. Like, we're, for those of you who don't know, had twins. Woo! Amazing. <laughs> Silent scream. No, um... Yeah, we had the typhoon, and then we've had two, two guest speakers, which have eased the burden. I just want to say thank you guys to all, for, to all of you for your gifts, for your prayers, for your practical support. Really appreciate it. And today, we're coming back into our Acts series. Acts isn't over yet. We're into Acts 20 today. And yeah, we're going to tackle the whole chapter, so get comfortable. Two weeks ago, we had um, my father-in-law, Professor Malcolm sharing. The past two weeks, we've been digging into particular things within Acts. One was this concept of Christ in the Old Testament, that Paul, when he goes into a new town, he went to the synagogue and he preached to the Jews there in the synagogue, Christ from the Old Testament, because that's all he had, right? So that's what Malcolm was sharing about two weeks ago. And then last week, we heard from Pastor Pete, pastor of Destiny Edinburgh, and he was sharing about... Remember, we said quite a lot about Paul is just so focused on God, so focused on his voice, listening to him, that he doesn't get annoyed when there are blockages. He doesn't, he doesn't go off track, but he just stays faithful, listening to God in each season and every season, and God directs him. That's what people speak about, about perceiving, about actually taking time to listen to God, not just to hear from God, but get that space to perceive what he's saying. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off in Acts 19b, we split Acts 19 into two, and remember we ended, and what had happened was Paul had just decided, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to go via Macedonia and Achaia, and he'd sent on ahead of him Erastus and also Timothy, he'd sent up to Macedonia, but before Paul could leave, he gets waylaid, because there's this massive riot breaks out in Ephesus. Remember the whole thing in Acts 19 with this huge riot that takes place in Ephesus. And so that's pretty much where we pick up the storyline. But it's, Acts 20 is an interesting one, because really something that's running as an undercurrent through all the history and the places that they're going, what's going on in Acts 20 is... The, the, the motive behind this journey. Well, in part, it's to build up the churches, but a big motive of going to Jerusalem via Macedonia and Achaia, you'll see on the map later, it's not the most direct of routes, is to collect this offering, to collect this great gift for the Jerusalem church. And we know that through the epistles. So he's taking this long-winded way around to collect this financial gift. And so as we go through the narrative, as we go through the history and we look at the chapter, also hold in mind that Acts 20 is this story of radical, never-before-seen generosity. And it challenges us today because a gospel-centered life, when we say, okay, well, yeah, we're building our lives on the gospel, a gospel-centered life is radically generous. You're going to see Paul, how he's fixated on getting to Jerusalem. He just wants to get to Jerusalem. It's not a flippant generosity. It's a planned, intentional 
sacrificial giving, this out-of-the-way generosity. So let's get into the chapter, verses 1 to 6. It starts as this riot ends, and it says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. It's highly likely, pretty much, the port to get into Macedonia, Troas. So they, they go up north, so he's in Ephesus. This is where we'll start, this is where we're at. And then he's going up to there, okay? Goes up to Troas. That's where it's going to be the main port to get up into, up into Europe. And so we've then taken the boat, gone up into Macedonia. That's his plan. And he gets up into Macedonia. The big churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. So letters to the Thessalonians, letters to the Philippians. They're letters written to the Macedonian churches. And at this time, we can't get this through the Second Corinthians Paul is kind of a bit, he's wanting to get here back from Titus. He's expecting Titus to meet him somewhere along the back way. And Titus meets him in Philippi. And he's overjoyed to hear about the church there. But it's actually whilst Paul is here in Philippi at this moment that he writes the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter. And he writes 2 Corinthians and he sends Titus on ahead why does he do that? He sends them on ahead to prepare them to begin preparing this gift. Sends him back down to those guys. It says this in 2 Corinthians 9.5. It says, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brothers. That's Titus and these two other. There's another couple of guys who are sent with him to go ahead to you and arrange beforehand your bountiful gift that you previously promised that it might be prepared as a gift and not as a matter of of greed. I love that, that it's saying, guys, take time about it. Don't just think, oh, you know, what's in my pocket and that's that, or uh, spring it on someone. Take time to prayerfully consider your giving. It's a serious thing. So, you know, giving isn't this matter of obligation. It's a matter of joy, isn't it? We give in cheerfulness. So remember that verse, God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? God loves a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver gets it. They've already got it. They've, they've, they understand that they've received all things in Christ, that Christ is the provider, that Christ is the way. Someone giving uncheerfully, there's something that they've missed along the way. There's something of the beauty of the gospel that they've missed along the way. You know, perhaps they see money as the way, not finding their ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ, but they've put it in something else. And so suddenly this, when faced with giving, that actually losing that money maybe doesn't get them to what they see is the way. That money itself is the way to their peace, the way to their security, the way to their happiness, whatever that thing that money buys may be. But the cheerful giver, he gives cheerfully because he knows that he's got all things in Christ, that his total security is in Christ, that his ultimate peace, even if all the money in the world he has disappears, his ultimate peace is in Christ. So money itself, it can be an idol, right? We know that, like people can idolize money. But not everyone has money as an idol, but money always, in some way, serves an idol. What do I mean by that? I mean ask yourselves this question. This is one of the big challenges of today. What do we spend our money on? You know, what we easily spend our money on 
what we easily spend our money on can reveal something of maybe an idol in our hearts. Paul encourages these guys, prepare the gift. It's this giving, measured, thoughtful thing. Not that spontaneous, whatever you happen to have in your pockets at that time of day. So Jesus, he gives everything for us, doesn't he? Jesus Christ gives everything for us. He was radically generous. And his people, as his people, were called to display that same, same kind of generosity. And I'm going to come back into this point later. So Titus heads. He heads off and Paul follows on. He follows on at a slower pace, gradually visiting the churches. And this is what it says in verses 2 and 3. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. So Paul travels down through Macedonia, goes to the Thessalonians, goes to the Bereans, visiting these various churches. You'll see later that he picks up guys and he with his party when he's in Corinth, very likely he's picking them up as he's going through these areas, representatives with the gifts from each churches. So he arrives then, it says he arrives in Greece. What is Greece? Greece is Achaia. Achaia here, that's towns like Athens. But Athens at that time, that was a, still a learning capital of the world, but it wasn't the capital of governance. It wasn't the capital of the, of the Romans in that place. What place is that? It's Corinth. And so he catches up to Titus in Corinth, and he stays there in this place for three months. And it's during these winter months. We know it's winter because later on you'll see he ends up in Philippi back in Passover. So he's there for these three months through kind of the winter time, likely traveling around, visiting the different churches in Achaia. And it's at this time during his stay, just to kind of put it, the whole, all the different pieces together, it's at this time that he writes the letter to the Romans. And he goes and he entrusts that letter to a deaconess from the church in Centuria, which is the, Centuria is like the port on the opposite side. So Corinth kind of is the Gulf of Corinth and you can get to Rome and Italy very easily. And Centuria is on the other side of the Isthmus, um, like this bit of land so that they kind of go out into come round to Turkey and places like that easier. And he entrusts the letter to Phoebe to take up to the Romans. So verse 3b, it says, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to set sail for Syria. So he's going to be going from Centuria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. He decides to take a land route. Look at the map again. It's not particularly convenient. He had to come down relatively quickly, stopping at different towns and things like that by boat. But he now travels back over land. He's under threat from his enemies. Paul's always been under threat from his enemies. But this time, it's more than just his life or his body that's under threat. What's under threat? This massive gift from all the different churches, a big part of his um, fundraising to help the poorer church in Jerusalem and the poor in Jerusalem. Paul just takes the sensible road. Let's go by land. Way more arduous. But he's wise with money. And there's just a point in that, that don't be reckless with money, especially if you're in a position where it's a, a church or a charity Good financial management is honoring to God. And it continues, it tells of these guys who are with him. It says in verse 4, he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, and also Tychius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. 
Paul's got this amazing bunch of guys traveling with him. It's kind of, it's, it's this really great group of guys, representatives from each church. And a lot of commentators say that these guys are representatives that are traveling with the gift of that church. And I just love Paul's care, his respect over the gift itself and over the givers from each church, that there's that kind of accountability around the whole venture. It protects himself through it as well. So important to be above reproach in all our financial dealings. Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, which is over in Turkey, Ephesus, Asia, the brothers from Asia, likely from Ephesus, Timothy from Lystra, and in the next verse, we'll see someone else. He's not mentioned by name, but some other guy that's joining them. A guy who's been dwelling in uh, Philippi says this. It says, these men went on ahead and waited for us. This is verse 5 and 6. They went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. It was of Passover. And five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So... Who do we see? The, suddenly the language all changes for, to do with Paul and them to us. Who's writing it? Luke. Luke jumps on the ship. Luke jumps on this kind of group of guys going back to Jerusalem. This boat journey just says it's five days. The boat journey should only take two days. So it's obviously a pretty terrible journey that they take to get over there. When they get there, they're probably pretty pooped, you know. They decide then, they stay there seven days before traveling on. At this point... They've got a lot of money. There's a lot of money from all the different churches that have been brought together. And whilst today we kind of feel, you know, churches fundraising, just pay it on PayPal, you know, it's fine. It's an accepted thing. If you think those days, one, it's a massive operation. They'll be carrying a lot of money. But then also it's distinctly weird. No one has ever really done this before. This isn't a normal thing that people in those days would give personally would give to the poor personally there would be some local church communities giving to the poor in their church community but this kind of mass collection across like an international giving mission to go across cultures to go across boundaries it, it just never been done before it never been it never been heard of before so it's just it's revolutionary what Paul is doing here and there's also this fact, this truth of it's Gentile churches giving to Jews. There's a massive difference there between the Gentiles and the Jews. Think decades before, though, one would call the other dogs. One, the Jews thought the Gentiles were created for destruction. But now in Christ, they're discovering this new unity. And there's a challenge in that for us today is what is your identity. Where do you find your identity? Where is your identity rooted above all other things? And that's challenging. Are you in Christ before you're in whatever your passport says, before you're British? Do you identify as in Christ before your Britishness or your South Africanness or your Australianness or whatever, you know, or your Chinese? Are we in Christ before we're in this church or that church, Destiny Church, Resurrection Church, Vine Church, Island DCC? Are we in Christ before that? And I believe it's good to belong to a body, but are we in Christ before our denomination? Are we in Christ before Catholic, before Protestant? So important. That amazing love that these guys have shown for each other. Does our unity with others in Christ, Trump, go above different churches, different denominations, different 
traditions, different nationalities, different cultures. And part of our vision here in Destiny Hong Kong is that we would be the family of God here in Saikung, here in Hong Kong. And actually the beginning of that, for us to call ourselves family, we have to come to a place where we are in Christ, together in unity, before all other things. Because he is the head, isn't he? So the story then continues, and it goes into this um, scene, you can call it if you want, this scene of um, this pretty amazing all-night meeting, which we're going to try and turn this into. And it's this meeting in Troas with the church there. They've waited, it seems, till the last night, because he's planning on going the next day. And it's during that meeting, this crazy thing happens. Let me read it to you. So it's verse 7 to 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Think about that. He's talking about how hot it is. I mean, for a start, there's no AC. You're in Turkey. It's baking hot, probably. And there's, la- there's a lot of lamps here. So it's like hot, smoky, maybe like drowsy kind of environment. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus. The window there, it's not like we know with glass. It's, we'd probably describe it more as a hole in the wall these days, whereas and they were quite generous then and called it a window, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I feel this next part is actually, you know, well, this part, you know, it's for preachers to not feel so bad if anyone ever falls asleep in their sermons because someone fell asleep in Paul's sermon. But then it is also maybe, I don't believe this, but a warning because look what happens to the guy who falls asleep in the sermon. So he actually falls out the window. So he fell sound asleep. Warning, don't fall asleep. He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. What happens? Paul went down. He threw himself on the young man. He went down the stairs. He went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Imagine that scene. You've got one of the best speakers ever, Paul, doing like a house meeting in this house. It's like amazing. You go along with your family. You took us maybe a brother, a father, a husband, and falls out of the window, a son falls out of the window. Imagine in that moment, the grief. How like, ah, in that moment before he's brought back from the dead, just how crazy it must have been that you're in this place with such beauty being shared, such hope and life and truth, and suddenly the fingers of death reach into that meeting and one who you love is dead. And those people, they look out of that top story window down to the dead and lifeless body of Eutychus on the ground. And you know, that is exactly what God sees or saw when he looked down upon mankind. And he looked down and he saw a broken and dead humanity. Spiritually dead, the Bible describes it. Separated from God because they'd walked away from him. How could mankind ever be reconnected with God Almighty? How could mankind ever be raised to new life again in him? And this story of Eutychus, it reminds us that there is an aspect of the gospel within it. That whilst, you know, Paul just goes downstairs, doesn't he? Paul just walked downstairs. That Jesus Christ, he looked down 
to this dead and lifeless humanity, to a people separated from God entirely, who are entirely without hope. And he decided to lay his glory down. He decided to forsake heaven. He gave up heaven. He gave up his throne. He had everything to come down to earth, to be born as a human baby, to go through all the stuff that a human child goes through, to be totally man and yet totally God, and to take upon himself the punishment that mankind deserved for that rejection of God, so that we could be brought back into relationship with him, that we could be raised again in newness of life through his resurrection, that we could be raised to life again. That is radical generosity. That is radical generosity right in the middle of this chapter, that we get this reminder of the awesome life that we have in Christ only because he gave his life for us. God giving you his life. You know, Paul would have been preaching that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It's hard to spend all night speaking about Jesus and not speak about him as the resurrection and the life. What better way for that church who Paul's not going back to, to really get it in their hearts than to see this thing happen right in front of them. And you know, it's not because Paul was awesome or because Paul had it all together and he never did anything wrong that Eutychus is raised from the dead. But it's because of who went with Paul down the stairs. It's who was dwelling within Paul, the spirit of the living God that is available for every single one of us, God Almighty. Have you received him today? Because in him is life and life eternal. Are you living in that eternal life today? Have you received him? If you haven't, guys, decide to follow him today. There's not a decision that's more important. Who is Jesus to you? There is not a decision that is more important than that decision. Have you accepted the gift given with such radical generosity? Life. Our story then continues in verse 13. They leave Troas. Well, most of them, apart from Paul, jump on a ship. And let's read that. It says, when we went ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard, he had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot, off for a walk. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Hios. The day after that, we sailed to Samos and... On the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So an interesting thing, if we go to that map, the red line is Paul. That boat sails around, around there, which is a longer journey by ship, but it's only a couple of days' walk by foot. I don't know what else you'd walk by, but it's only a couple of days' walk, okay, for, for Paul to go through there. Many commentators aren't really too, too sure about quite what Paul's doing here, just that he just needed some, some time, just to get some space. And, you know, guys, sometimes, actually, in the busyness of life, we need to be generous to ourselves. We need to give ourselves time. Sometimes that's the right thing to do, is not to do more, but actually to do less. Give, give yourself some alone time. Be generous 
to yourself. You don't have to be radically generous to yourself in that way. I'm not going to work for the next couple of years. But so, you know, for some people, actually, that is a, that's an appropriate decision if God calls, that, calls you to that. I don't think, though, that this is a moment where Paul switches off and he just kind of puts his iPod in and walks over for two days. I think it's a time that Paul just gets before God alone with God. Do you remember, for those of you guys who were here, Pete was saying last week, make time to listen to God. Make time to listen to him and perceive what he's saying. But particularly, Pete said, make time to put time aside to think about the years ahead, next five years, the next decade. That you dwell in that with God and hear from God in that. Paul, we know, because we've read the rest of Acts, we know Acts, he's transitioning, he's going into a whole new season. It's a whole new season of challenge. He's going to be arrested and spend many years in prison and, and things like this. I think in that time, you know, God really shares stuff with him. We see later on that he, sh- he shares with the Ephesian elders just about how ready he is to go into hardships and imprisonment. Being in, with God doesn't just show you what's happening, but it gives you strength and grace to walk into the places that God's calling you into. If you were here last week, did you think, have you given some thought to, I'm going to have a think about what I'm going to do over the next, or what God's calling me into in the next decade? You know, there was one thing that really struck me that Pete said, well, actually, there are a few things, I'll mention another one later, is that Pete said, nothing that's happening in Destiny Edinburgh at the moment now is a surprise. So the details, like the way things work out and the details, it's different. But actually, that everything that's happening now is the exact stuff that God spoke to me about and said, this will all happen. It's not a surprise. And I think that's, that's awesome. Get before God. So the party, they then get back together at Assos. Paul gets on board. They do a little bit of um, Greek. Turkish, depends on your, where, where you come from. Currently, it's Greek. Greek island hopping. They go down through the Aegean, and they decide to sell. Well, Paul says, look, we're going to sail past Ephesus. That must have been a tough call. Remember, these guys had spent nearly three years living in Ephesus. Relationships and friendships. They, 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 it would have been such a comfortable thing, such an easy thing to do, catch up with some people, stay there for a while. But it would have stopped them doing the thing that God is calling them into. And Paul's got this drive to get everyone to Jerusalem by Pentecost. There's 50 days after the Passover that was celebrated in Philippi. Stopping in Ephesus would have just held them up. And there's a challenge there for us because sometimes we just want by default to go do the thing that is the comfortable thing or the thing that we we just feel it sits right. I often get challenged by some of the guys who kind of lead me, or oversee me. Says, James, don't get stuck in a rut. That's one of my, one of my things, because I love, I could just get a bit just in the channel that we're, that we're doing things in, and it's comfortable. So these guys, they're now in Miletus, and it's there that we go into the last kind of section of this whole chapter, which is where they land there, and Paul says, hey, go and get the elders from Ephesus and bring them here. So they, they send off to get the, um, F, the Ephesian elders, and they, they come down. So I'm just going to read to you a bit. It says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Remember, guys, just as I'm reading, this is the last time he's ever going to see these guys. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. 
From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that will be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there? I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul, he tells them of this task that's set before him, of this continuing to testify of the grace of God, to share the gospel, that he has this expectation of hardship and imprisonment. We know, right, that Paul goes on and he is, in, he is imprisoned. He's ready, he's just so ready to walk that path, not because he's like a masochist or something like that, but because it's the place that God has called him into and he's given him the grace to walk in that. I love here, we see an example of Paul just sharing with them, guys, that he's been radically generous with his life and will be radically generous with his life in the weeks, in the years and years to come. That he's spending his days, literally spending his days, ardently pursuing the task that the Lord Jesus has given him. Do we ever think, you know, what task has God given me? We aren't all called to be apostles. Okay? We're not all called to kind of be like Paul or even necessarily called to go into kind of full-time or what you would see as like church-based ministry. You know, we're not all called to kind of shape church history and things like that. Very few people are. But we are all called to different things. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're put in certain families. You're put in certain jobs. You're in these places. You know, what is it that God is speaking to you about, speaking to your heart about for you to do? Pete shared this great thing last week that I just want to remind you about. I mean, some people may call it destiny or calling or whatever, but those things that God's speaking to you about, maybe it's in your career. Maybe it's, maybe you feel just God's saying that like, I want you to like be an accountant, be the most amazing accountant that there is. And I want you to honor me in your accountancy. And that's this task that you're pursuing ahead of you. Maybe it's to start a project or do, do something. It could be all sorts of things. You know, the world, the kingdom isn't made up of just pastors or apostles or people like that. It's made up of everyone pursuing the gifts that God has put inside of them. But what Pete shared last week, I thought was amazing. He said, spend that time to listen, hear, and perceive what God is speaking to you. And then when you hear it, take hold of it with all your might. And he said, this church over the last 20 years, it's turned into a big church for Scotland standards. He said, it hasn't done that because I'm intelligent and great at what I do or anything like that, but I've just listened. And when I've heard God say something, I've held onto it with all my might and run with it. And God's come through because it's God that's building the church. It's God that's working in your lives. And so, guys, I just want to encourage you in that, that when you hear the thing that God's saying to you, take hold of it with all strength and determination and perseverance. Live in that calling that God's calling you into. 
Verse 25 and 31. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That's the bombshell, right, for these guys. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that, I, that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. What encouraging words near the end, Paul. <laughs> Paul reminds them, firstly, he reminds them of what he's taught them. And it's in this, there's like this sense of, look, guys, I'm handing the baton over to you. And there's something very biblical and honoring and godly about that, as passing things on to the next generation, that God has entrusted to you, entrust to others. He's entrusting the church to their safekeeping, to their oversight. What's a pastor? Pastor feeds the sheep and also defends the sheep. We're getting now into the very last words that Paul's ever going to say to this group of people. These words aren't just random. They are very important. They're the ones that are very likely to be remembered. And he then warns them of these wolves that are going to come in from outside the church. And also, guys, within the church, we're going to rise up and try and lead people away and distort the truth. There is actually a whole bunch of various heresies growing up in the churches around this time. Things like Jesus being a created God and and things like that. Paul is reminding the elders that they are these shepherds, that they are to feed the sheep, that they are responsible, that they're to father this church, that they are to protect and defend. What does the shepherd do? Kills the wolf, right? Shepherd lays his life down for the flock. Notice Paul doesn't speak about persecution here. It doesn't say, you know, the Romans are going to come through here and like, you better watch out for them. He speaks about people coming into the church and leading people away from the truth. That's central. The gospel and the maintenance of the integrity of the gospel is central to church. It's vital. That's the role of elders, of pastors, that the gospel isn't corrupted. You know, guys, some of you may find yourselves in positions, whether it's leading like, a church group or it's leading maybe one day some of you guys be pastors, some of you guys are elders and things like that within churches, that we have to safeguard the gospel, that the gospel is central to everything. The reason I say that is because actually if the gospel goes funny, you cease to have a church. The, the gospel, you have a group of people meeting together, believing something that does not give eternal life. And that, that's just, that's terrifying. It's, it's horrific, you know. But it is in the gospel, in the good news of God, that we have life. 
to now commit to you. This is verse 32. Now I commit you to, last words here, guys. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. These are the last words he's going to be speaking to these guys. And they're, like, they're very like, unlikely to forget them. And he says these two things, which on first reading can seem a bit random, because he says something that seems super godly. Okay? And he says, I commit you to the word of grace. Wow. Paul, that's a, that's a great godly thing. We don't fully get it at the moment, but that's a great godly thing. I commit you to the word of grace. And then he goes on and he speaks about a whole load of things to do with money and how he's provided for himself. And then he ends with this saying, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, believe the gospel, live it out, trusting you to Jesus and live radically generous lives. And they seem so random and disjointed but are living the gospel and radical generosity completely different topics? Not at all. That's why it's so important. What he's saying is, if you're living in the heart of the gospel, you will be living lives that are radically generous. And he's reminding them of this because, you know, as last things to leave, as he's leaving this this church, he probably doesn't need to chuck in there about adultery or something like that. No one (laughs) accidentally commits adultery. Oh, wake up in the morning. Sorry, I just realized that you weren't my wife. That was a complete accident. Sorry about that. No one steals something by accident. Right. I just got in this car and I realized I just forgot I didn't have a car and your Tesla keys were there. And I only realized when the police stopped me. Those kind of things, theft, adultery, we don't need to be told about that. But greed, greed is a very interesting one because we no one ever knows that they're greedy because there's always somebody else you can compare yourself to who's probably spending a lot more. Remember I said at the beginning that money isn't always an idol, but it can always be in the service of an idol. What is it that we find it very easy to spend our money on? This is a bit of a weird one for me, because for me, actually, I don't spend any money on clothes. I have no problem not spending money on clothes. But I think there are those people around me, like my wife and my mother, who are like, you can't look like that. So I'm blessed constantly by a fresh supply of clothes. But I wouldn't actually have an issue with that. But some people would have a massive issue with that. Makeup, I don't have a problem with that either. But makeup, you know, clothes, all these kind of things, they're awesome things. The point of it isn't we should all stink and look terrible. The point is, you know, if we get our self-security, if we get our self-worth and we derive that from what we look like, from how others perceive us, then we've missed something. Maybe for me it could be, you know, I find it really easy to buy Christian materials and spend a lot of time like finding, spending money on stuff to help me look better up here or something like that, you know, because maybe there's a challenge as a pastor, like, because you can begin putting your identity more in what you do standing up here and sharing than who I am in Christ. So challenges for us all. What do we find it easy to spend money on? What is that treasure of our heart? And the bigger question is, when you find it, how do we change? 
How do we change? How do we replace the treasure? How do we drop the treasure that's an idol, let's say? How do we drop that idol treasure? And just to say, some of you guys know this because I've said it before, but an idol is never really a bad thing. An idol usually is a very good thing that we make an ultimate thing that we put in the place of God himself. So how do we change? How do we drop that treasure? I commit you to the word of grace. Who's the word? Who is the word? It's Jesus, isn't it? He's committing them to Jesus Christ. I commit you to the word of grace. Jesus is the one treasure who did everything to purchase you, whereas in all other treasures will demand that you die to purchase them. Jesus sacrificed himself to purchase you. All other treasures demand that you will sacrifice something of you to purchase them. So why did Christ come? Why did he even bother coming? You know, he was rich. He had everything. He lived in glory in heaven. He didn't need us to like chat to. You know, he's living in a triune relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The, the most awesome, loving unity in existence that there ever was or there ever will be. The only thing that he didn't have was you, was us. See, by coming to earth, what happens? He loses his glory, doesn't he? He lays it down. He lays down his glory. By going to the cross, that relationship, that beautiful relationship with the Father was broken, that temporarily he loses his Father and he's effectively sent to hell. What does that mean? It means, guys, that you are more valuable to him than the universe which he let go for us. It means that you are more valuable to him than his glory, otherwise he wouldn't have laid it down for you so that he could get you. We are his ultimate treasure. He's done every single thing for us. And so when we see that, when we really see the lengths and the depths that Christ treasured us to, that he went to to make us his treasure, the only response, the only natural response is that he becomes our ultimate treasure. See, the more you see Christ making you his treasure, the more you will walk into that path, into that road where he becomes your treasure more and more, where stuff in the world is nice stuff, because we like to not stink, right? We're good to buy deodorant and makeup and stuff like this. I won't buy makeup, but you know, all this kind of stuff, this fine stuff is good. But if it is the ultimate thing, if it is our greatest treasure, if it is in that, that we have our peace and our security and our hope, then we've made it into an idol. And we've missed the greatest treasure of all. We find our identity in him and what he says about us, who he declares that we are, who he's made us to be, not in what money can buy. He is the way, not money. So when Jesus, the radically generous one, when he becomes our ultimate treasure, we live lives that reflect that reality. It isn't uh, we have to do this and, and I'm afraid because actually I get, my, I get my self-worth through how I look. And so if I give this money, I'm not going to have enough money to buy the stuff that I wanted to buy to make me feel good. But, you know, I'm not saying you give all your money to church. Buy great stuff. But just don't let the money be the way to your peace. Jesus is the way to our ultimate peace. That is why the gospel-centered life is a radical 
life of generosity. They're, they're completely inseparable. And so, guys, just to end with verse 36 and 38, it says, When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see him face to face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Guys, and I, I love the level of relationship that Paul has with these guys. This is church. This isn't just some, like, hierarchical structure and Paul's just checking in. They love him. They're brokenhearted by what's happening, that Paul has to go. And you know, it's my heart for Destiny Church that we wouldn't just be a group of folk that meet occasionally or meet once a week, but that we would live and our lives would intertwine with each other's and that we would experience that depth of relationship together, that, that we would be connected in this awesome relationship together. And over nearly three years, they've been living together, working together. They've been living lives of radical generosity together. Like think of Paul, he's pouring out his life for these guys so much, so much time and resources. Think of the other guys traveling with him. They could have been off doing all sorts of stuff. You know, Timothy from Lystra, he's come in and he's there and he's serving and he's having a great time. And then Paul just says, go back to Macedonia for those guys. That, amazing. And there is a challenge for us here, just as we draw to a close. For us, is church just an event, you know, on a Sunday? Don't let it ever be that. Let it be a body of believers that you are living out this Godhead relationship between, that you are part of that deep community wherever you're at, that you're in deep fellowship with other people in your church. You know, there's, a, there's some aspect that we can't fully experience the great like, joy that God calls us into to be his children, his people, when we decide, actually, we're not going to go to church. Church upset me a little bit, so I've just done. I'm done with church. I'll just be a Christian by ourselves. And sure, you'll be saved. There'll be eternity. But there is an experience that we wouldn't have, that you can't fully experience that life outside of deep relationship with others. And then we have this point, though, where we see, you know, Christianity, when you're together in a church, it's ultra-loving. But actually, a holy huddle isn't the, the be-all and end-all. And at times, time comes where Paul has to leave. Paul has to go. And you see, the thing I love is that one, the wonderful human relationship is part of it all, but it's not the ultimate. It's not the ultimate goal. Paul's leaving these guys, and he's going on to hardship, and he's going on to imprisonment. Why? So that more people can come to faith. And he's called into that. And I just want to challenge you guys who are part of Destiny Church and you know, you know about these small groups that we're starting and the heart behind these small groups that we're trying to get off the ground. I think one of the hardest parts of a small group is when it hits a point where it's about multiplying. Because, you know, as Christians, we love that comfortable, we just love each other kind of part. And it's so great and it's so, it's so good and so vital. But then the flip side of the coin is less comfortable, which is when groups multiply and actually there is an element of radical generosity in that. Because what are we doing? We're doing something. We're being generous with our, with our relationships, basically, where we're saying, you know, we're creating room for new people to be discipled. And that's just so vital that as people come in, as people discover Christ and come into the church, you know, I can't disciple every single person. And that's actually not a job of the pastor. The job of the pastor is to equip everybody else to disciple everybody. So I encourage you guys, be generous with your relationships. Don't hold out too long on multiplying these groups. 
So guys, when you think about generosity, don't just think about money. Radical generosity takes many forms. We're just going to pray. I'm just going to pray and then just challenge you guys with some questions. Just to pray, to, pray a response to God too. We just have a, have a little moment of response before we go into our last song. And Father, I just thank you for this word, God. And I just pray that you would challenge us today, God. I just want to ask you guys, you're sat here today as your eyes are closed, heads are bowed. Is Jesus your treasure? Is he your greatest treasure? Or is there something else? Is there something that you know you'd feel the world's falling apart if, if, if it went, if it was lost? <laughs> is there that thing, that potential idol that you have a propensity just to easily spend loads of money on? So I just encourage you guys here today, you guys who have a relationship with the living God, that you know that the Holy Spirit dwells inside you, take some time in his presence just now to just let him speak to you is there something he's calling you to be generous with that maybe you've never thought of before so say it's not just money it can be all sorts of things and guys but just whilst you're dwelling on that just whilst you're thinking and speaking to god about radical generosity i just want to speak to folk here anyone who would say, you know, actually, I don't, I, I don't really feel like I follow God. You know, I don't feel that the Holy Spirit lives within me. I don't really feel like I have a relationship with God. If that's you today, that's the most important thing to do before, 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 come, before coming to God to ask him any other questions, coming to him and accepting that free gift of eternal life. So if that's you today and you want to start that relationship with God today, I just pray this under your breath. Dear Lord, thank you for dying on a cross for me. Thank you for taking the punishment of my sin and giving me your righteousness so that I can have eternal life. Holy Spirit, come and fill me afresh today. I make this decision to follow you for the rest of my life. King Jesus, in your name, amen. Father, God, Lord, I thank you, Jesus, Lord. I thank you that you are the, the radically generous one. That you're just so awesome, God, Lord, that you give us all things, not just eternal life, God, but all things, every good and perfect thing is from you, Father. And Father, I just ask that as we worship you now, Lord, as we worship you, that you would just surround us lord that we would know your presence near if anyone did just pray that prayer lord that you would begin working more and more more just in their hearts lord you know what's been going on in everyone's heart to do with generosity rad this radical generosity and i just i just pray father just in your peace and your grace lord you just work in that in your name amen